You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show and welcome to a very special series of podcast episodes that I'm doing. This is going to be part one of a series of the history and ideas of American pragmatism. Joining me is my good friend Tim Keefe, who I originally met through the Mixed Mental Arts community. Um, I've had other people on the show from that community as well, Hunter Motts, Adam Hansen, Andrew Meinzer. Um, And I originally heard about Tim through that community and heard him talk about philosophy on another friend of mine's podcast, uh, James Sullivan's uh, James and the Giant podcast, where they went through the history and main ideas of post uh, postmodernism, postmodern theory, and they talked about postmodernity. And so I contacted um, Tim. We've been exchanging back and forth for a while, talking about philosophy, and I wondered if he would come on and do the same thing with me. Um, about the the history and main ideas of American pragmatism, the main ideas of Charles Peirce, William James, and John Dewey. So he was gracious enough to come on and join me. Um, We get into Tim's background before getting into any of the history and philosophy um, because I wanted to get to know him a little bit better. We've only talked about philosophy in our exchanges, so um, this was a great chance to get to know him and to introduce him to all of you guys. He, as he talks about in the episode, he originally was going to uh, become a professional academic philosopher, um, but then he ended up going in different directions with his life, but he's been a lifelong student of philosophy, and so he's just a a well of philosophical knowledge and history. So um, he was a great person to have come on and do this with me, Um, and it's the beginning of many recur he's a he's going to be a recurring guest on the show to talk about you know different philosophies different ideas um and stuff like that so i'm introducing him to you guys um he's going to be a big part of the show in the future uh, and this is an experiment i've never done anything like this i'm not a professional philosopher or academic or professor um so you may notice um me being a little shy uh, or nervous in the beginning um, of the series, I definitely get more comfortable as we go, um, but I've never tried to explain um, in a long-form way uh, a philosophy of anything. Um, so this is very new for me and uh, exciting, too, because I want to experiment with the show, try new things, um, and all that. So I'm really excited for it. I hope you guys enjoy it. If you're not into philosophy, um, if this is all too abstract or, you know, into the weeds for you, then, you know, this short series won't be for you. I have many other inter- interview style episodes coming up in the future, and uh, you'll definitely enjoy some of those. But I especially wanted to do this series because I am interviewing a lot more philosophers uh, coming up very soon. Uh, a lot of pragmatist philosophers, and so I thought it would be a good idea to lay out the main characters of American pragmatism, to lay out some of the history and their ideas, just so that there's more context for when I interview uh, professional philosophers. Um, And so I think that this short series will be useful in that way. 
Um, for all those who are continuing to listen to the show, thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. I, you know, I didn't know if anyone would be interested in the show. And the show continues to evolve, and that's exciting for me. I don't want it to be the same thing always. So thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, if you guys want to help support this work and it's becoming a lot more work um you can go over to the patreon page and donate for as little as a dollar a month um i'm going to come up with new tiers and everything coming in the future um if you can't donate monetarily or with you know with your money um you can go over and follow us on twitter you can uh rate and review us on itunes all of that really really helps so um without any further ado here's my conversation with tim keefe and setting the stage for American pragmatism. But I really don't know that much about you at all. Uh, how did you get interested in philosophy? Has that been a lifelong interest? Uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, I was first exposed to philosophy when I was in high school. And this goes way back to when I was a freshman, you know, early teens. And I went to Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. So in Catholic high school in my freshman year, uh, for all four years in, in Catholic school, you, you, you take some, you know, they call them religion classes at the time. They didn't, they didn't say theology. They just mm-hmm. said religion. You know, because it's, you go to mass every so often and, you know, I was lucky in the school that I went to was very much in the vein of the, the liberal education where you had to take three years of a foreign language, four years of literature, world, British, American – uh, mathematics was in there, and we studied geometry and things like that. It really, <clears throat> it really amazes me when I look back thirty odd some years ago when I was in high school about yeah, this was a liberal education, and it's lost on some people, but for others like myself, it really, it really laid a solid foundation for other things that I've read over the years, particularly philosophy. So then. Particularly for my freshman year, we we covered world religions. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time that I was exposed to uh, something else other than Christianity like Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and uh, Shintoism and things like that. And so that that planted the seed, as did uh, world history. So in the course of world history, you you encounter the the standard uh, characters like Plato, Aristotle, and so on, just as part of history. And so all of these names were lodged in my mind, so that way when it came to a later, you know, as a junior or senior, thinking of going to college, it was like, well, what do I want to major in? And originally I wanted to be a history major, but then uh, philosophy took over after my freshman year, and I just switched to that. And then um, I went to a small Catholic college where I had a lot of theology mixed in with that. So <clears throat> I, can ease, I, can, I can definitely speak to theology not to the same extent of philosophy, but it's interesting enough where there's a lot of cross-pollination that yeah. happens. Because theology was more ascendant than philosophy was for a long – for many, many centuries in Western thought. Yeah. And then um, as I progressed and had kind of idiosyncratic teachers because it was a small college covering lots of different things. This is when I was first exposed to Heidegger, to Vico. Uh, pragmatism to a little bit, reading on my own, and um, I just followed my nose. 
other words. Spend a lot of time in the library reading. You read this, this brings you to this, which brings you to that, which then brings you back to this, and so on. And so I've been doing that for well over 25 years. Well, were you raised in a religious home or no? Yeah, nominally Catholic. Okay. So when you were exposed to world literature and comparative religion, it was very much an eye-opening thing rather than something that you resisted at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when I was in those classes, I I mean, I come from a very much a presuppositional, fundamentalist, evangelical background. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when I was in those classes, it was very much like I was expected, um, just like culturally, no one told me to, but I was kind of expecting myself of myself to come to those classes with like arguments against you know what I'm hearing and why you know Christianity is better and stuff and I really didn't have any kind of super eye-opening experiences until college and my interest in philosophy was very much antagonistic if not uh very tense uh early on and then I started to see the benefit the um critical ability the ability to think more clearly about I mean, lots of different things. And, um, you know, my eyes started to get opened up a lot later. Um, so I'm always interested when I hear people tell their stories and they had very eye-opening experiences early on. I'm always jealous of them, but, um, you know, everyone has their own path. So I was just interested in that. Yeah, in, in Catholicism, or at least the way I was raised in Catholic, it wasn't uh, uh, argumentative or confrontational. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of like, yeah, we read the Bible in in grade school, but it wasn't just a big thing, yeah. you know. And I remember in particular, um, I, I had mentioned about being exposed to um, comparative philosophy, comparative the- yeah, yeah, comparative philosophy and theology starting mm-hmm. in high school. But even before then, when I was in grade school, like there were times when we went to the to the local church not far away from the school, and we would just sit in the pews and read the Bible. And mm-hmm. I would always find myself turning to the Proverbs, <clears throat> yeah, the wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. So it even started then. Yeah, was there more of an emphasis on like Catholic teachers, Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, and different like Catholic theologian philosophies, Thomism, and different things like that, or was it very much like all over the place? Well, it wasn't really all over the place. It's more like. You know, just like with any kids, is that you you don't have a choice in what church you're raised in. Mm-hmm. So, I was born into a Catholic family, and my my family, as I said, were nominally Catholic. Mm-hmm. My mother and father were, my aunt and uncles, and things like that. Yeah, you you just go to church, and then you hear about Jesus, and then in school you hear about the Virgin Mary, the Incarnation, and things like that. And you just you you learn about them, but you don't really sit and ponder them because mm-hmm. there's lots of other stuff that's going on. And it wasn't so fundamentalist as that we didn't have dancing or singing or things like that. I mean, it was just really broad based kind of education. It wasn't yeah. until later on when you started saying. Oh, Aquinas! I've heard of that name. What does he say about this? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't realize that. Or, or Savonarola, or you know, some other characters that you find out about in the course of Western history. So, when did you start uh, diving deeper into philosophy? When I took my first course as a freshman, mm-hmm. and I've, I really haven't told too many people about this story is. Um, you know, for a time that I, I was expecting to become a professor one day, yeah. I'm going to go for my PhD in it. But wisely, I backed out of that for lots of different reasons, and I stopped after I got my master's. And all 
all the time that I was, you know, reading, doing my courses and thinking about, well, how would I approach teaching this to somebody? You mm-hmm. know, this is way before the internet <clears throat> came on the scene. And it seems like introductory texts usually approach it from one or two perspectives. One is historical. You know, start with the pre-Socratics, then you got Plato, Aristotle, and you just progress. Yeah. And then you have thematic, which is what is the soul? What is knowledge? What do we know? How do we know it? Mm-hmm. Uh, physics, philosophy, science, and things like that, all thematic. So my approach when I was a freshman was thematic. And I still have my textbook. It's, it's in my, um, my tag boxes in the basement. But it covered thematic, and this is when I first became aware of those people, you know, Plato, Aristotle, you heard about that, Aquinas in passing, but, you know, again, Heidegger and even the empiricists and the, the rationalists, Descartes, Locke, Hume, Berkeley, and, and the rest. Uh, a little bit of Hegel, not very much. Marx, of course, you know, you kind of heard about that. You know, I first was... I first encountered Marx when I was a senior in high school. We actually had a semester of Russian history. And this was back in, you know, before the Berlin Wall fell, so it was still a um it still was an important subject to study. Maybe mm-hmm. not so much now. So that's when I had my first exposure to that. And it's just the more that I was reading certain things just kind of tied it all together. Oh yeah, I know about this, I know about that. And it's just you use that as a springboard to go into the next area to go into the next area. And then you kind of return back to what you had looked at before and then start questioning. Hmm. So you said wisely you didn't go into professorship. Why do you say that? Uh, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one was I thought it was going to be extremely hard to come up with something original, mm. which you know, in certain respect is how much more can you possibly say about Plato and Aristotle? Right. Well, it turns out that you can, but the – the core texts have been edited many different times over the centuries, and the the particular arguments have been hashed out more than once. I mean, how many translations of Plato's Republic is there? Yeah. Okay. And you can listen to lectures, and you know everybody has their own take on particular things. Same thing with Aristotle. And then it was, you know, to really kind of make your career, you were going to have to do something that was out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, certain forgotten figures. But then how do you get scholars to pay attention to those figures and how are they not overshadowed by something else? Right. So that was one thing. Second of all was I did not want to really spend a lot of my time teaching undergraduates. Mm. Now, if the internet had existed before then, like what Gregory Sadler does, whom I greatly respected what he does, I would have done something like that. But that wasn't the case at the time. And then I just had an interest in other things. You know, I kept philosophy as, a, as an ongoing thing, just like classical music is for me. But I never, in the case of classical music, I never wanted to be a, a classical performer. Because mm. that's, really, that's a really tough field to get into, and it's not all that remunerative as it once was. Mm. So I just decided to do, it, to do other things. I kind of needed to get away from philosophy for a while because I had been spending a lot of time eating reading and breathing it almost yeah and then it just it just gets too much and you have to go well maybe i should go read economics or you know maybe i should go into it like what i work in now and do that as a way to not get so deeply into philosophy where you don't do much of else Mm. 
Yeah, I uh, I was just reading uh, Ecclesiastes every every now and then. I read uh, some commentaries on Ecclesiastes that it just has a, a certain place in my heart. Um, even though I, I I haven't read my Bible devotionally in many years, um, but towards the end, you know, after Coalette the the speaker throughout the entire book, he's supposed to be the wisest man, and he searched everything far and wide, every single place every field of knowledge every kind of life to be had and at the end he says pretty much like don't follow me (laughs) to the writing of books there is no end and right i I definitely uh can see that in philosophy where you can just pick things apart and you can wonder you know if you're actually making a difference and so it's like that's almost a whole new genre of of philosophy is what's the point of philosophy and there there are actually really good books out there um yeah. john, john Kegg just came out with uh american philosophy a love story and that's mm-hmm. an amazing book um but it's like philosophy much like um fiction or literature has to like defend itself at this point because there's just so much of it um it's just really interesting and i'm reminded of um of Kuklik's uh, history of American philosophy, and one of his main thesis or main like topics of um, that he wants to explore is the idea of the increased specialization, and that seems mm-hmm. you know to be part of you know your story and why you didn't go into philosophy professionally because it's like it's almost you're almost a victim of the hyper specialization that's going on in philosophy where to to uh distinguish yourself you have to specialize in something to the point where you discover something you know some new turn on something that we've known about for a very long time but you turn it in such a way that you know you can get some oohs and ahs from your colleagues right it reminds me of um number one nietzsche's path how he originally began as a philologist and then he abandoned that because it was at the time you know at the time then certainly anybody that studied classics is that you you you're preoccupied with translations and new turns of things or is this a particular interpretation of a text that you know has been around for millennia and it just not, doesn't speak to life. So mm. what did Nietzsche do? He abandoned it, and he went off to do his own thing. And then I think of James's essay, The Ph.D. Octopus, yes. where he talks about specialization. Mm-hmm. And then um, you know other books that have come out that are a little bit more in the vein of you know literature or popularizations or things like that. And that's that's a particularly fruitful subgenre, I think. But it also requires the background for it. Yeah. And the thing that i the thing that i have a problem with 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 um with books like that is that they're a little light on the philosophy right. you know like for example i was talking with uh, andrew about this on the one stoicism mm-hmm. uh, episode is that stoicism now seems to be popular but how long has stoicism been around number 1 and number 2 is you can definitely get a lot more by reading the stoics themselves and understanding, which is why I took that particular tack with Andrew, is that, well, let's go look at Stoic physics and metaphysics that then leads into the ethics. Instead yeah. of just focusing on the ethics and you know nothing about what the particular metaphysics were. Mm. So, you know, you took a break, you said you took a break from philosophy and then you came back around to it. Um, well, I've always, been, so, I've, always been coming, I've always been coming back to it. I mean, okay. you know, as I was saying before about in my early education is <clears> – <throat> Um, although I haven't read, you know, we'll say, we'll pick, we'll pick a figure like Theodore Dreiser, 
mm-hmm. an important important figure in American literature. I know who he is. I know something about his background. And if I'm so inclined, I can just go to the library, take one of his novels off the shelf and read it. Mm-hmm. Same thing for Ambrose Beers or in English literature is, you know, I've, I've, I've had an appreciation of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And um, although I've not read all the plays, I've read enough of them and I've seen the movie versions where I have enough of a critical mind to say that, yeah, I think that was a, I think that was a decent take on the play. And this other one was just completely terrible. Uh, for example, there's Romeo and Juliet. I saw the Franco Zeffirelli one from the late 60s when I was a freshman in high school. Yeah. As part of literature. And then I saw Baz Luhrmann's one in the 90s that had uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. And yeah. I, I couldn't stand it. Really? It's just it's just not my take. But mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, it's it, it, it's it's a major retelling of Romeo and Juliet. Whereas I'm a little bit more of a purist. Yeah. And one to stick more to the fidelity of the text, which is, yeah, but there's only so much that you can do that up, updated to late 20th century or early 21st century. Mm-hmm. Can't but, read into it as much as you want to. There yeah. are some limits. But portrayals like that can uh, access or uh, function as access points for people who haven't uh, read the literature prior to watching it, which is, you know, how I came to it. You know, I'm younger, so Mm. that I I saw that movie um, and then that actually increased my interest in Shakespeare and Mm -hmm. Shakespearean um, stories and illusions. And I started seeing those and other things. I was like, oh, I think I'm actually trying to get this, you know. So things yeah. like that can act, you know, access or function as access points, um, you know. Yeah. And talking about philosophy, you're talking about those books that are, you know, can be light on the philosophy, and you know, those can actually function similarly to uh, <laughs> to that version of Romeo and Juliet. Right. It's just because I was because I'm a trained academic, more yeah. or less. Some of it is, yeah, it's a low light. I prefer a more scholarly treatment of this because I really want to get get into the meat of it. But that's mm-hmm. just the way I'm trained and that's how I, uh, how I approach such things. Speaking of your training, um, what, how were you trained exactly? Obviously, I'm not asking for you to lay out the entire academic plan that you had to consume, but was it um, like how was critical theory um, a big thing when you were in school? Like what were the methods that you were taught to, um, you know, the primary ones that you were taught to use and have you stuck to them? Well, so I could say the... Generally, I was my training was very broad based. Mm. So when I was an undergraduate, for example, um, it was a small Catholic college, and if you were a philosophy major, it was philosophy theology. You had right. to take so many theology courses. So when I was a fr- when I was a sophomore, because I transferred from another college when I was a freshman, where I didn't study in philosophy except for that introductory course, um, I started to get into biblical criticism. Mm-hmm. hermeneutics yep. so that was the first time I had ever experienced that getting more into the Bible and understanding that you know the Bible is a is a translated document the King James is just but one translation of others that have come out since then um, the primary sources you know the synoptic ops, gospels how are those different from John mm-hmm. uh, who wrote Reve- Revelation is John of Patmos the same as the author of the Gospel of John no it isn't you know all those right. kinds of things that scholars have said and then um, the philosophy courses were just kind of – really, I think the professors were more – they didn't stick to much, so much to a, a particular method. It was more free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Now, it didn't 
it didn't influence me as much. You know, I'll give you a perfect example is that uh, one course was metaphysics. That was a stylus course. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, it would be nice to take something to have a survey of what are particular metaphysical theories, Plato, Aristotle, even contemporary metaphysics. But the professor who did it decided to focus on Vico, the new science. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, that is one way to approach metaphysics, but for lots of people that were in the course, they're just like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about yeah you know he would just get up there and he would lecture on and on and on things like that and i met and i met with him uh often off on the side because it was a small enough college so it didn't matter to me but thinking yeah if i were those other people i would have really appreciated some kind of a survey yeah and a little more discussion on just themes instead of we're going to focus on vico and mm-hmm. what did he have to say about that yeah my uh in my undergrad i i mean at the risk of offending possible listeners who <laughs> who know who I'm talking about I I went to uh you know I mentioned this before on the podcast I went to a a Bible college uh, I originally was going to go into ministry um and so I was being trained in that way but there were certain requirements and you had to have at least one philosophy class and it really was just you know it was very much uh, thematic in the sense like here's logic and here's ethics here's metaphysics but um it was not like we did not hear about different philosophers it was just very much like here's enough of what you need to know to um i don't know to not really do anything it really didn't like i don't think anyone was motivated to learn more about philosophy after that class i think everyone was just pretty much bored with it which was you yeah. know pretty much my exposure to it but I uh it was pretty pretty much lacking but it very much was a here we're going to you know teach you the cosmological argument you know and we're going to teach you this argument it was very much presuppositional where it's like here's how you can use philosophy kind of like to pretty much defend your faith and right, you know yeah. we learned a lot about like you know John Lennox and apologists and stuff like that and it was very much apologetic um and when I started to actually learn what philosophy had to offer and the wealth of um, of methods and of ways of thinking about things and going back to what you were saying about metaphysics, um, just just giving one person's idea or one system of metaphysics to a group of people, it's like you're only going to inspire or really, really reach some of the students who – who think like that specific philosopher, you know, it goes back to William James talking about philosophers, you know, whose philosophies, it's a matter of temperament where it's like some philosophers, you really, you know, you connect with that person's temperament and you really connect with their system while, you know, others are going to, you know, completely just not get it. And reading James helps me kind of appreciate that where it's like, if I'm trying to explain someone, uh, you know, a, a, a part of philosophy or tradition of philosophy to a friend and they're just not getting it at a certain extent, it's like they're just not going to connect with it because it is a matter of temperaments to a certain extent. It's not all um, just if you're rational, then you're going to get it or not get it. Yeah, I firmly believe in that. It's it's one thing I noticed, uh, particularly with Nietzsche. Mm. And, you know, before I went to college, when I was a, a senior <clears throat> In high school, there was a guy who really fit the stereotype of the the isolated loner. Yeah, and I remember, you know, we we were in physics class together, and I remember sometimes being in that room, and he had a copy of what did he have in Nietzsche Beyond Good and Evil, and it wasn't it was a couple of years before I went back to that, and I'm thinking, 
Okay, so I can easily see why, particularly for younger, isolated men, Nietzsche is like a bolt of lightning. Right. So it, it appeals to that particular kind of temperament. However, reading Beyond Good and Evil itself requires a certain level of scholarly rigor. Yeah. And that kind of temperament, too, to really get into the meat of it. Because mm. you could easily pick it up and walk it around and say, oh, aren't I cool carrying Nietzsche around? But do you really understand what he's getting at there? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. I feel like for um yeah it, it takes you know a young man or an old man to really appreciate Nietzsche but the young man's gonna latch on to some of the aphorisms the angst mm-hmm. and not understand the broader deeper points being made and the older man may not get to it until he's older because he's not going to be interested in Nietzsche until then but at that point he's perhaps hopefully you know put in the time and put in the the experience where he's he can actually penetrate the text and understand you know like oh this is this is you know a lot more useful than i thought or <laughs> than i thought when i was younger right and you were saying about the temperament i firmly agree with james when he mentions that but it's also a matter of uh one's age and one's background mm. you know as i as i said in my case is that i came i was trained in the the classical liberal education so i had a lot of exposure to many different things, and because I have a f- pretty good memory, I would say I retained that. Mm-hmm. Or there were certain things like, you know, what I mentioned before about the, the literature courses is, just like with Nietzsche and philosophy, I was really attracted to Ambrose Bierce, who wrote um, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was in this, how would, how would you best describe him? Probably like fantastical type literature. Okay. Have a sense. I don't know if you've ever read Beers, but he's mm-hmm. he's um, he's an important figure in particularly like Civil War era American literature because he was at um, I think it was at Shiloh, the Battle of Shiloh. So that influenced a lot of his outlook. He was also a journalist, mm. so he writes a certain way. Or you know, another well-known figure is Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, is when you and then reading the literature and then reading the person's life when you get around to it you start to make the connections yeah you know i've read a lot of poe but i've also i also convinced that uh somebody who's become more popular nowadays but uh somebody that i've never really read is um lovecraft yeah yeah so that that influence that appeals to a certain person too in their temperament the fantastical and the morbid the the nihilistic or whatever it is type of story mm-hmm. yeah so that's where i started to you know really getting into certain that kind of literature was already setting myself up for philosophy for philosophy too mm-hmm. when you read somebody like nietzsche who is not who is rigorous in a sense but he is not aristotle rigorous yeah and he's certainly not a hegel you know hegel even even today is difficult for me to get into because it's just Trying to find that point to get into, Heidegger is the same way. Trying to get into that point, unless you have some kind of a background, is really difficult, which is why Hegel and Heidegger and people in those veins are just obscure to the average person because they just don't have the – number one, point. they don't have – they don't have the access point, but they don't have the patience and they don't have the, the kind of a background because yeah. to really look at it – and this was something I was trying to tell Andrew, too, is that it's fine if you want to rely just on a survey or a, a commentary. Mm. Because, number one, you're not going to have the time to go to the primary text. And number two is you're not going to understand what the primary text says. Yeah. 
versus if you take something that really s- simplifies it. Here are the themes in Philosopher X. These are the primary texts. Go off and read if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my experience and you know, and my experience is very shallow in philosophy and specifically pragmatism and then and the tradition of pragmatism. Uh it has just taught me um firsthand just the respect needed to penetrate any tradition. Any uh you know, anyone worth reading, any philosopher, any theorist, like you really have to respect um, not just the person themselves and the writer themselves, but the people who have influenced them, the tradition they're coming from, the history. And I first learned this, you know, back in my, you know, Bible days because I was very much interested in going into biblical studies. And um, it, it goes back. I I keep thinking about this because it keeps coming up. But um, I was. Uh, Reminded recently about Derrida's, you know, deconstruction and the, you know, people just think that he's this asshole who wants to just deconstruct things that we like to hold on to, but, um, but it's a lot more nuanced in the fact that Derrida is deconstructing things that he loves. You have to respect the thing that you're deconstructing. You have to love it. You have to be committed to it. And so there's this this aspect of when you go in to critique something, you're doing it with a reverence and with a respect of the tradition of the text, of the influences um, that I think a lot of people are missing when they just – you know they become interested in philosophy and they think they can just – pick up a survey or pick up a few texts, think they understand it, even though it was written 200 years before them. They think they understand the words being used, the, you know, the, the allusions, and they're like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with this. I don't like this. Uh, I disagree with this, 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 and this. But they haven't respected the text enough to really have a grasp at, what's, at the import or, or even just the context of what's being discussed. Right, or more recently, you see this with postmodernism. Yes, absolutely. The big, the big, the big bugaboo of the last, past mm-hmm. couple of years, in part thanks to people like Jordan Peterson. Yeah, and I'm totally uh, guilty of it. But I, I mean, a lot of it's just ignorance. But that you know, me re- in in recent years, and partly you know, uh, listening to your podcast with James Sullivan on his podcast, James and the Giant uh, podcast, I think it's called. If I didn't say that wrong, um, you know which is where I first heard of you and why I wanted to have you on, you guys explained uh, a, a lot more of what postmodernism is all about and what postmodernity is all about and why it's not the uh, the big uh, boogeyman, you know, that it's made out to be. And that was just, I mean, I, it's another example of, of being reminded that you can assume so much uh, if you just – take a survey, if you don't respect the thing that you're trying to critique, if you don't have a certain reverence or love or respect towards the tradition that you're analyzing or critiquing. And I think that that's one of the biggest examples of just that sort of dynamic. Right. And the respect comes too with the, um, the understanding, which comes with age and experience. You know, the more you read and the more you know, the less you know, is then you start to see, well, what what seems to be in vogue now is really nothing new. Mm. You know, like like a case of Jordan Peterson in postmodernity. When I heard him strawmanning, in essence, Dardan Foucault, it's just like, okay, so this guy, number one, doesn't know what he's talking about. And number two is, I can easily see where this is going to go because people are going to latch on to this. They're going to take it as 
as a school of thought, we'll say. Right. And then they're going to continue to straw man it where it's like, listen, I was reading postmodernity and it was a thing, postmodernism, starting in the late 70s. Yeah. So this thing is not new. And in fact, people have been talking about it off and on. It's had it's had its crest and it's had its trough in terms of popularity. And it just really was never those things, at least, you know, based on my reading too, is really never those things that you really that you had to seriously consider. Yeah. I mean it's kinda of like modernist art, you know. Somebody who understands the history of art says, Oh yeah, I know what the modernist period is. I can easily point to certain figures and that's it. It's confined yeah. a little bit to art. And then you have postmodern art. Okay. But you know, and this is where I tr- definitely nowadays make a distinction between postmodernism and postmodernity. Mm-hmm. Is the itty is a state of affairs? Yeah, and I think that's a lot easier to to grasp and to engage with critically than it is postmodernism, which sounds more like it's an artistic strain, which in many cases it is, and then you you misconstrue it as a school, so you can easily attack it and dispatch with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, once you actually start to um, you know <laughs> listen to uh, you, Tim, and understand you know that kind of more rounded out version of um, of what these terms mean and what post you know postmodernism, postmodernity is all about. Um, you see that the things that people who are critical of it are really disdainful for or towards is. Um, the sort of things that are the result or consequences of postmodernity, but as you've shown, uh, it's really the consequences of modernity, not postmodernity. Postmodernity is a condition that we find ourselves in as a result of what modernity did. Uh, right. And so, you know, people are afraid of this radical relativism, um, which I think, for good reason, I think that there's a lot of problems that come with it. Uh, but that's not synonymous or equal to postmodernism to be a postmodernist does not mean that you're a radical relativist right um it would be it would be difficult to even understand what that would mean right and even those who are tagged as postmodernists would refute the label they reject it yeah i mean in a t- in <laughs> in some sense aren't we all postmodernists oh sure just like we're all modernists exactly we're postmodernists because we're modernists <laughs> we're the children of modernity well, that's right. Yeah, and that's why in like the third part of the James and the Giant podcast is I, I focused on Zygmunt Bauman, who mm-hmm. I think is probably one of the better sociologists who has tackled the subject of modernity and postmodernity, where one of his key themes is that uh, postmodernity exists within modernity. Yeah. Modernity is still with us. It didn't leave the stage. But postmodernity is a, a warping, we'll say, for lack of a better term, or just a certain morbid state of affairs that has emerged because modernity is still with us and it can constantly is moving forward and modernizing everything. Mm. Could you say that postmodernity or the postmodern condition is a self-awareness of or self-consciousness of modernity and the effects of modernity? Uh, it could be. I mean, one, there is a figure, Anthony Giddens, who's a very prominent British sociologist, been writing for a long time. Uh, they He coined the term with others called reflexive modernity. Mm-hmm. So reflexive modernity, number one, presupposes, yes, there is such a thing as modernity. And if you really 
have to put your finger on a date. It started in the 15, it started in the early 1500s with the Renaissance. Yeah, this is when you started to see the rise of um, early forms of science, particularly of humanism. Man is the measure of all things, instead of um, you know part of one unbroken chain, God's creation. Yeah, things things like that. So that is modernity. But now in the 20th century. In particular, you had reflexive modernity. So now we are at a point where we can look at ourselves and say, yes, we are modern. Here's how we define modernity. This is how we are modern. And the reflexivity means that you can adequately categorize it and make changes to it. So Mm -hmm. modernity has these ill effects. We can do something about this by changing the way we approach the way we engage with the world. So that in general is like reflexive modernity. Mm. So I wanted to have you on to discuss the a very broad uh, history of American philosophy, specifically uh, postmodern or not postmodernism, pragmatism, um, that will hopefully one day lead to us discussing postmodernism. But um, I, uh, <laughs> I I talk about pragmatism so much on the podcast that I thought I would just get all of it out with you in a series and then I don't have to say it ever again after this but uh, this could go for um, several episodes many episodes but we discussed having a series on the history of pragmatism but you can't just start with the pragmatists themselves you really have to set up you know set the stage with this conversation of modernity modernism um, and kind of everything that was going on in the 1800s um, in America, which was kind of a clash of values, a clash of ideals, a clash of beliefs. Um, it's considered, you know, that time period. Uh, Mark Twain coined the phrase uh, the Gilded Age, and in, in the 1800s, specifically the 1860s, are considered the beginning of the spiritual crisis of the Gilded Age. And the idea of gilded, it means being covered in gold. Um, but on the inside, it's not gold. It's not pure gold. And the idea is that, you know, you have all these coverings or gold plates on, uh, all these different reactions to, um, the issues of modernity that are coming to a head and, um, the civil war, um, and, and, and Darwin and all these different things are all playing as, um, well as as catalysts to kind of all these issues coming to a head and the raising of um, the increase of pressure and so I wanted to have you on to um, to discuss a little bit in more detail um, this this time period. Did people during that time have a conception of themselves being modern? Was that something that people talked about themselves as, or is that something that came later? on as people look back? Mm, That's a tough one. I'd say maybe starting in the 19th century was when they started to refer themselves as modern, Mm -hmm. whatever that meant. And, you know, we could call ourselves modern too, but of a different sort. Um, Certainly modern and modernism is a historical term. And, where you define the modern world um, or modernity even, probably you could say is around 1600 or even a little bit before with 1500 because 
prior to that, you had the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, and then you're going into what, for all intents and purposes, you could consider as modern. And there's many different ways to define the modern. So, I mean, it's it, it's it's one of those you can speak volumes about what is modern and what is modernity and things like that. Um, so, where do you think is a good place for us to start with <laughs> with that conversation? Well, as far as philosophy is concerned, I'd say that modern philosophy starts with Descartes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe we can start there. Yeah, it's a good place as any. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you go ahead and tell me what you've understood about Descartes, what you've read about him. Do you? Could you give us a summary about what Descartes' core philosophy is and how he how he is considered a modern versus a Renaissance or even a medieval philosopher? Um. So, in my, I have not read Descartes directly yet. Um, everything that I know about Descartes is pretty much in the negative, talking about the problems that he created that we are trying to fix now um, or correct. You, people talk about Cartesianism. They talk about his concept of doubt, You know, the method of before you start any inquiry, um, try to doubt everything You know, as if that could possibly be possible. And that's what people critique is – um, especially in pragmatism, you know, there's this critique of Cartesianism and Cartesian doubt, which is that it's impossible to doubt everything. Um, so what I know of Descartes is um, his skepticism and his uh, his idea of his methodological doubt. Um, and then from there, my understanding, which I think is common for a lot of people who try to um, dip into the philosophical history, is it, it quickly becomes this guy was arguing against this guy B, and then C comes in arguing against A on this way, and then correcting B in this way. And then you just get all these different names arguing about very complicated things that it's difficult to pin down exactly what each person thinks. So <laughs> that's kind of why I wanted to have you on to kind of clear some of that, um, clear some of that up, or at least what the main ideas are. Um, as far as Descartes' contribution, I'm not sure what his um, his original contribution to... I, I guess I don't know exactly why he is considered so important. I just know that he is. And then I know what people have been trying to correct from him after him. Okay, so I could go through, <clears throat> you know, we referred before to the um, how one approaches philosophy historically or mm-hmm. thematically. So we could take the historical tack here. Now, there is the, the group that's called the rationalists and the group that's called the empiricists. Yes. So we'll start with the rationalists. Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza. Okay, so <clears throat> they are called rationalists because they prioritize reason over sense experience, mm-hmm. particularly with there are certain ideas that are innate to the mind versus everything comes from sense perception. Now, the empiricists, which is Locke, Berkeley, and Hume, uh, John Locke himself subscribed to innate ideas. However, they don't have the same kind of precedence with him as they do over all the rationalists. So, in Descartes in particular, yes, he is very well known for the methodological doubt. Now, that's important because you read the meditations, he is writing of his um, his doubting process. So, as scholars have pointed out, Descartes already 
believed in certain things, which is the result of his methodological doubt. He was going through the methodological doubt as to try is to attain some kind of certainty about what his particular innate ideas were about these things. So at the end of the doubt, one of the things he can't he there are three innate ideas that he um, arrives at: the cogito, God, and what's called the race extensa or extension. Okay, let's take one of, each one of those in turn. So God, obvious. There is a God. He is the creator of the world, blah, blah, blah. The cogito, cogito ergo sum, the Latin phrase. Or in French, is je pense en je suis. I think, therefore, I am. More properly in the meditations is cogito sum, I think, I am. The therefore comes a little bit later. So the thing about the cogito is it's an irreducible thing a foundation that I am a thinking thing. Regardless of how far that I doubt certain things that I know or that I perceived, there's one thing that I cannot, that I indubitably cannot doubt, and that is that I'm a thinking thing. So that's where the cogito comes from. And by itself, it's referred to a concept of the, the thinking subject, the cogito, I think. And then there's the race extensa, which is things that are in the world have an extension to them. They occupy a particular place and they occupy space. Okay, that's what the risk extensive is. That's Descartes in a nutshell. Question so far? Descartes is, is typically um, criticized for his mind-body dualism. And so people typically criticize him for that dualism. But that dualism was in place for a very long time in the history of thought before he came along. Did he ramp it up at all or just continued on <clears throat> with that kind of dualism? I'd say he probably ramped it up a bit. I mean, this was also in the frame of um, modern science coming on the scene. And Francis Bacon, the famed English philosopher who mm -hmm. was the more or less the inventor of the scientific method, was before Descartes. So Descartes, as far as the modern is concerned, really occupies a place in modern science versus what had come before. Mm-hmm. So Descartes established this method of would you call it intuition i mean people call it armchair philosophy the idea of of being a rationalist being you sit down and you try to rationally think out the problem you know you do all your your doubting and then you try to you know look at the problem without any preconceptions which obviously is problematic but um what is the i've, I've heard him uh, i've heard of people talk about him introducing a uh, methodological revolution could you speak on that well it's a methodological doubt i can doubt everything that up until now i have taken to be certain or at least i think i'm certain but as i was stating before is after his methodological doubt he goes through the meditations he arrives at those three innate ideas i know there is a god and the other thing is the uh, the evil demon as a deceiver. Mm -hmm. It's possible that I could be deceived by a demon, but I know this is not true on the basis of my mythological doubt. There is a God, I am a thinking thing, and that things are extended in the physical world. But I see in your notes you have Hume, Barclay, and Kant, so we could we could focus on those instead of the other folks. Okay. So um, <clears throat> Barclay is another is one of the British empiricists comes before Hume. And so Barclay's importance is the Latin phrase esse est percipi, meaning to be is to be perceived. So it is a sort of empirical idealism. 
Yes, there, yes, empiricism is important. However, these things do not exist without a, without a conscious perception of them. Mm-hmm. Also, they do not exist except in the mind of God, because Barclay was a priest. The idea being that the world keeps its its uh, stability and its structure because God is thinking it, and the human mind is, can access that that mind imperfectly, but we can still access things because he's keeping it all together in his mind? Uh, yeah, but again, remember, to be is to be perceived. So <clears throat> you probably heard that old quip, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there to hear it, does it make a sound? It needs to be perceived in order to be real. Correct. But that's Barclay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moving around to Hume. So Hume is the most famous of the British empiricists and probably the most important because <clears throat> he does not start from, like with Descartes, innate ideas. Nor does he start with John Locke, who also believed in innate ideas. And um, his empiricism, his doubt, is much more radical than Descartes'. You doubt everything, and you're doubting what you perceive. But in the Treatise on the Human Nature and the essay on um, human understanding, he goes through the whole shebang about perception and causality, skeptical about causality, the problem of induction, which is we say that A causes B, but how do we know this except some kind of relation that exists between them, and all we really know is the relation. Mm -hmm. You can't point to something and say that this is a cause. That A cause B, whatever that is, because where's the cause? You can't perceive it. And then more importantly, he talks about um, no such thing as a soul or a, a self, because if I look within myself, where, where is this self that everybody talks about? I do not perceive it, because I only perceive myself as I'm perceiving. So it's radical empiricism. And also radical skepticism. Right, radical skepticism. But that's Hume in a nutshell. And then moving right along going to Immanuel Kant. So Kant definitely was heavily influenced by Hume with perception, but Kant was trying to approach it from the perspective of, he's more or less as like a synthesis of rationalism and empiricism. Mm -hmm. The continental rationalist and the British empiricist. So, yes, we do have perception, we do perceive things, and this is how we acquire knowledge in one respect. On the other hand, there are certain innate tendencies or um, faculties within us where we know such things or we can come to some conclusions because there appears to be an innate connection there. And that's where the term a priori, a posteriori come in. A priori means prior to experience, something that already exists innate to the mind, and a posteriori coming from sense experience itself. Mm-hmm. So, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is an a priori truth. You take two things, you add them to two other things, you get four things. Right. That's that's the case across the board. Versus you know of something because you've seen it, you perceived it, and that's how you've acquired that knowledge, but you did not know this before. Yeah. Okay? So think of synthesis of rationalism and empiricism. That's really caught in a nutshell. Yeah. So he, he conceded that, yes, we... Uh, we don't under or we don't see the world as it is in itself, um, but we still see something. Could you explain his transcendental idealism? Right. Well, transcendental is something that it's beyond experience. Right. So, 
<clears throat> or the transcendent is. Yeah, that's the transcendent. So, I mean, as far as the idealism is concerned, that, that's been a subject of debate for centuries. To say that he's a transcendental idealist, okay, well, he's an idealist upon one reading as far as faculties are concerned. Mm -hmm. So, there are these ideal faculties that exist within the mind that we cannot perceive. I mean, we, we can argue that they're there and that they're the same across all people. But they do not exist in another worldly realm necessarily. Kicking it up a notch or two, that's where Hegel comes in mm. as the absolute idealist. Yeah. Okay. So Kant paved the way for the German idealist, but he himself was not necessarily an idealist, even though some people like to describe him as such. Well, he's a transcendental idealist in terms of faculties in the mind. Okay, so he didn't understand himself as a transcendental idealist. That's something that philosophers are coming up now to describe his project. Right. Okay. And Kant is a, is a mine of many, many years of fruitful scholarship. So you have these, these philosophers, and you have the Enlightenment and this rising modernism that we would classify now. What was the impact that these people, that these philosophers had on their wider culture? You hear people talk about like the rise of Enlightenment and rationalism um, and rationalistic thinking. Um, did they, were, how influential were they actually on their culture? Oh, I say they were very influential. So... Mm -hmm. The ramifications of what happened, particularly of the Enlightenment, was skepticism, rationalism, instead of accepting things on tradition and faith, um, empiricism itself, even though empiricism, you know, you, you acquire knowledge through sense perception, that's nothing particularly new, even back then. Um, the old truths, particularly of religion, were breaking down, and this, this accelerated in the 19th century. And, um, but you know, they weren't necessarily atheists either. You know, Descartes, Descartes, Barclay, and Kant were all believers. Hume, mm -hmm. not so much, because he was the radical empiricist. Right. In fact, one of his more famous works on that is the Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. He turns a skeptical lens on religion as such, natural religion, as it was called at the time. So they were still believers, but. Right. They were much more critical, rational, and then the founding fathers for the United States were very much influenced by the Enlightenment. They were deists, which means they were believers, but God itself did not intervene necessarily in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, all this was a radical departure from what was commonly accepted in the Middle Ages, particularly Christianity, and to some and to a lesser extent in the Renaissance. So there was a a breakaway from traditional theological um, methods of authority where the authority of interpreting the world moves from the church to the mind of rational thinkers. Correct. Also the rise of the individual. Mm. And particularly in the Renaissance, man is the measure of all things. Mm -hmm. So man himself became a subject of study. <clears throat> That's where humanism, Renaissance humanism came in, and that there is more more focus on the the individual instead of a community. But the the community, as in the community of God or a Christian community, was already starting to break down because mm -hmm. of skepticism about formalized religion, mm -hmm. um, industrialization. The start that was a, 
some of that started in the 18th century, but that's more of the 19th century. Urbanization, yes, definitely. And the rise of the city-states. Yeah, so with the rise of the nation-state, that was important in the 18th century. So you did not have the the nation in terms of the ethnic or in the religious. You had, you know, when you talk, you talk about the German people versus the German state. Mm-hmm. And that's in particular with the 19th century. You know, because prior to then you had French communities and German communities, but you did not have the French state and the German state. Or that you had kingdoms, rather. You know, where was the French kingdom, the French monarch? He resided in Paris, but how far did the French kingdom go? And each of the principalities that existed within Germany, each of the principalities that existed within Italy, Russia, all of the European nations, then started to coalesce like the German nation itself, the nation state emerged in the 19th century. So the seeds were planted in the 18th century, and then they really started to sprout, flourish, bloom in the 19th century. And why is that important, the the switch from the city-states or to the so city-states? Well, so again, it was the, <clears throat> the um, prior to then, I mean, let's look at Germany as a perfect example. Mm-hmm. So prior to then, you had German-speaking people. Mm-hmm. But where? Okay, so you look at Germany today as a nation-state, and you have the, the provinces of Berlin, Baden-Württemberg, Bavaria, Bremen, and so on and so forth. Each of these are all part of the nation-state. Mm-hmm. Just like in the United States, you have North Carolina, South Carolina, Michigan, California, what have you. But in Germany, um, Bavarians are different from Berliners. Berliners are different from people who live in Mannheim or in the Black Forest. Okay, even today, yet they're all considered Germans. Well, back then, in the early 19th century and before, Bavaria was an independent kingdom. And maybe had more in common with Austrians than it did with the rest of Germany. Okay. In terms of a nation. Mm-hmm. But when the nation state emerged, then Bavaria became part of an abstract entity called the German state. Right. And so there's a, okay. a displacement of identity. Yeah, there's a displacement, displacement of identity to some extent. Certainly not to the extent it is now where you have a globalized world and Germans could reside here in the States or they could reside in uh, Japan and they might consider themselves German, but they live in a different country, a different nation state. Mm -hmm. So over time, as you're moving into the 19th century and the 20th century, people became more uprooted. And so the old idea of the nation went the way to the nation state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's probably even – more ramped up with America where, I mean, everyone's an immigrant, you know, especially early on in the history where you have all these travelers all coming in, you know, and having to organize and work together and form, you know, a common culture, a common, a common governance. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as we're, as we're pressing forward, uh, you mentioned about Newton. The Newtonian worldview. Yeah. So, as I said, with the rise of um, modern science, sometime in the 16th century with uh, Roger Bacon, mm-hmm. or sorry, uh, yeah, Roger Bacon, no, sorry, Francis Bacon. Francis. With the other Bacon. Francis Bacon, with the scientific method, and then Isaac Newton, 
with the mechanistic worldview. Um, the world uh, operates by certain laws, and these laws can be discovered by human reason. And these are explanations by physics instead of what up until then was theology. Mm -hmm. Before then is um, a primitive type of theology like the gods or uh, nature was imbued with a spirit and things like that. So now you're looking at a scientific worldview becoming more dominant. And then the notion of the natural theology where creation displays the perfect orderly work of God. That theology was still there. It was not really all that incompatible with science, at least not yet. And um, as I said, you could explain nature according to certain physical laws, and God may or may, have, may, or may not have a part in that. If you're a deist, no, it doesn't have a – God created the world and then removed himself from it. The mm -hmm. watchmaker, or it's like creating the clock and then setting it on the mantelpiece to operate by itself. Right. But for a growing, educated people, you know, during this time, having something like a natural theology would be super important. And having that kind of Newtonian worldview actually worked out for them as far as giving an account of, you know, God, which is <laughs> what everyone was trying to do. Everyone's trying to prove that God exists. And so they would just say, look out to the world, look at creation. It displays, you know, it displays his work. Everything works perfectly together and orderly and everything has its place. Um, you know, the tree does its functions. It helps us to breathe and the, the, you know, this animal eats that animal. Everything just works out perfectly orderly and it's all for the glory of God and, you know, and, for us human beings, it's all for the glory of us, and it's all there for us to, you know, to watch and admire and worship God. So it kind of played into, you know, new rational understandings of God and, you know, enlightenment gods or right. God. Right. Another word you could say is that the world was slowly becoming disenchanted. Right. Which there means that which means that the world was not full of um, spirits mm -hmm. or fairies or anything like that. You could explain things according to natural laws. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at a particular physical object, you could break it down to its constituent components. An apple is composed of X, Y, and Z, or water is composed of X, Y, and Z. Now, this, in, in definitely in the case of Newton's time, you didn't have the, the microscope, so you didn't get down at the atomic or the subatomic level mm -hmm. by any means. But you still could explain things mechan mechanistically, right? physically. And this is something that we take for granted. You know, We know that the table that I'm sitting before me isn't imbued with any kind of spirit, mm -hmm. whereas centuries ago, people would think it was, or that... The stars, in some respect, were um, you know spirits in the sky. The explanation of constellations, things like that. Yeah, so you know, during this time, there was a shift where God wasn't behind every corner, wasn't behind every tree and every animal. God was now became the first cause, and everything worked orderly to you know his perfect uh, his perfect will in creative action. In the beginning of time, but everything works according to you know him making it so. Right. Okay. So then, shifting gears, uh, we have to mention Charles Darwin. So mm -hmm. when
when Darwin came on the scene proposing the um, the theory of evolution and natural selection. So, according to him, it's the world displays a chaotic and wasteful nature. Humans lose their special place. We've already covered that. And the biblical crea- account of creation is challenged. So, instead of the world being four to 6,000 years old, as the Bible has specified, it is now possibly older than that, stretching back hundreds of thousands of years or even millions of years. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> Darwin, with his worldview, destroyed revealed theology, which is that to know God is to, is to know it through revelation, particularly in the Bible. And the old, the old view that the world was created by divine will, it was replaced by chance adaptation. The world and humanity was an accident. And then survival of the fittest. So organisms, including humans that exist within the world, they strive to survive and reproduce. And over time, the, the fittest, the ones that can survive the best, survive while the weaker ones die out. According uh, also with species, and evolution is adaptation to particular natural selections or yeah pressures from the physical world, and evolution is taking place all the time. So mm-hmm. from a more primitive state to a more complicated state, mm. complex state. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, <laughs> Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection was. A super controversial um, theory during his time and continues to be, and it, it's pretty obvious why uh, humans lose their special place in the world. They are no longer the shining gem of creation because everything is just an accident, including them. Um, the world wasn't created in you know six days according to the biblical creation, and you know things are still being created. The world is still changing. The world is still growing and dying and growing, but it all seems a lot more arbitrary rather than look out into the world, look out into the mountains and the forests and see the beauty of God. It's more, well, some of this will be here, you know, thousands of years ago, you know, from now, some of it will go away, new things will replace it, and it all just kind of seems arbitrary. Um, so it kind of puts a um, a big knot in the teleological framework that people were working from. That's right. And supporting that was archaeology. <clears throat> so new archaeological digs have uncovered um, civilizations that were previously unknown, that reach farther back than um, the biblical civilizations, who themselves are quite old, as was a Greek and Roman civilization, not as old as the Hebrew civilization, but the, the artifacts that they bring up and this, some of this supporting the fact that um, there, were, there were also other civilizations in addition to what, what people had known in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, European-centric, mm-hmm. including Native American after uh, Columbus and the other conquistadors came over to this side. Many civilizations that had risen in tandem with the Hebrew civilization. So now – what people had thought was unique was no longer unique. <clears throat> right. Other stories like the Enuma Elish are uncovered and other stories that are similar where that relate and are very similar to like the old biblical stories. And so now the questions raise, how are all these stories so similar? Um, does that make the Bible problematic? Does it, you know, are, are the scriptures 
still unique in their own way? Um, are they all working from similar sources? Are they all working from similar stories? And what makes this story, you know, more true than this other one? And so it kind of puts a, you know, it, it makes belief in those things as, liter- as literal, you know, problematic. Right. That also dovetails into biblical criticism. So you have a little bit more of a background in that than I do. Maybe you could speak to that. Um, yeah, well, the I mean, it really was a, uh, an assault coming from Germany um, as far as biblical, biblical criticism goes. Uh, traditionally, orthodox beliefs about the Bible um, were completely torn apart by new methods of analyzing the text. Um, one big name is uh, the German... D.F. Strauss with his higher criticism, um, which called into question the miracle of Jesus and suggested that the old histories should be reinterpreted. Um, Strauss's influence was limited in America, um, but he was a big deal in Germany. And, but that was only until the Americans encountered the work of another German. Uh, if I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right, Jul, uh, Julius Wellhausen. And what Wellhausen challenged was Moses's authorship. And so, with traditional orthodoxy, you know, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and yes. that has gone pretty much unchallenged for um, you know most of Christian and Jewish history. That's just orthodox. Um, but what he, what Wellhausen demonstrated was that these books contain tons of logical inconsistencies, contradictions, stories, um, told from different perspectives, bearing the marks of different writing styles, even within a single text, some of which, um, uh, demonstrated that they were written from later times and others. And so he kind of showed that these stories were compiled by many different people, often from very, you know, different times and places. And so he challenged, you know, he, he pretty much showed that, you know, all, most of these stories are written a long time after Moses could have been living on the earth. And he kind of just put more skepticism into the heart of biblical style, scholars, of theologians that, you know, had their basically their orthodox traditional story about how things worked. And what these German, you know, higher biblical critics did was show um, that, you know, the Bible came about through human means. And what we understand about the world today as far as nature and uh, science, that we have to take those principles and um, and send them back in time in our understandings of these stories. And they really did show them to be stories rather than, you know, the divine word of God. Correct. Now I could add a, a few thoughts into this. So in the for biblical criticism, what they had turned up is that the Bible itself was not a coherent document. This is the Old Testament. Even the Old Testament by itself is not a coherent document, as is the New Testament. But... Uh, you know, I could speak to this with my Catholic background is that um, Catholics, I mean, with each of the denominations in Christianity, there's a certain version of the Bible. You have the translation, the King James Version, or the New International Version, but Catholics have their own version of the Bible, Lutherans have their own version, Presbyterians do, and so on. And so, in Catholicism, I remember growing up is that the Bible is really not as important as the catechism is, mm-hmm. which is the teachings of the, the Catholic Church. 
you know, authority of the Pope and the Virgin Mary, the Incarnation, and blah, blah, blah. The Bible is important, but not as important. And I certainly remember that the New Testament, of course, gets a lot more attention than does the Old Testament. However, when I came to to look at biblical criticism and hermeneutics, much scholarship had already been done is that, well, yeah, of course, the the Bible itself is is accepted as a somewhat coherent document in terms of that it is a it's a collection of texts that is a testament to the faith, mm-hmm. the Judeo-Christian faith. But of course Moses didn't author the first five books. Those were written much later than Moses lived. Of course Jesus didn't um, author the Gospels. Why else would they be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Okay, and those were written some years, at least a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion. Okay, and not to mention the fact is that the sources from which the authors took them were different. Particularly in the Old Testament, you know, you focused on Ecclesiastes, which is the uh, the odd man out in the books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, why is it in the Old Testament when it doesn't really seem to to conform to any particular? Uh, yes, you have the first five books of Moses that established the creation of the world and the Jewish people with their dietary restrictions and their laws, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and so on. But yet you have Ecclesiastes that's talking about vanitas vanitorum, all is vanity. Mm-hmm. Okay, even though he was a Jew. And then you have about the kings, Solomon and David, and blah, blah, blah. And then once you get to the end, then you get into the New Testament and everything changes. Okay, So it makes, it makes sense for somebody that I'd say is perceptive reading the Bible cover to cover. And you're just like, well, this really doesn't make a whole lot of sense when I read it cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And then you only focus on certain books, and usually those are taken out of context. And certain books are focused on, other books are not. So all this wraps up into that biblical criticism where it said, yes, you cannot accept the Bible necessarily at face value. Now, maybe some people say that it's divinely inspired. Okay, that's a that's a somewhat plausible argument. But every person who wrote it, wrote it within a certain context in a certain period of time. And oh, by the way, you're reading it in translation. Right. So, so with that, how ad- you tra- sorry. So how you translated it into the King James is, is different from what the original source, to, source language texts were. Right. Yeah. And this, uh, higher biblical criticism obviously took a blow much more to some traditions than other traditions. Um, like you were just talking about Catholicism didn't really get, hit by the same in the same way that protestantism did um because protestantism you know is stemming from you know luther and uh the reformation where you know you know through luther's work he pretty much you know sola scriptura he made the bible the you know pretty much the word of god um and so we didn't look to tradition we didn't look to the pope we looked to the bible itself and everyone had the right to look to the bible itself to see exactly what god said and so right. you see this hyper bibleism uh rise up out of the reformation and so at this point where you know now you have these higher biblical critics um challenging much of our traditional ideas about the bible well, you're challenging, you know, the foundation of a whole host of people's, you know, entire religion, their entire worldviews, how they understand everything. You know, it was their foundation of stability. Right. Don't also don't forget is that Luther was important because he translated the Bible into <clears throat> the German. common German language right. at the time. So prior to then, when you attended mass, 
you know, because most everybody was, was a Catholic at the time. You attended Mass, it was said in Latin. The priests knew the Latin, but the common people didn't. So, and the same thing with the Bible. You had the you had the original. You had the Greek translation. You had the um, the Latin translation, the Vulgate. But most people didn't understand that. They took whatever the priest said at face value. But then, when Luther translated into German, that now made it more common to the people. And then, coupling that with the Gutenberg Bible, made it more widely distributed to people. So that way, they could get their own copy of the Bible. Versus, the, only the priest had the had the authoritative Bible for that community. Right, and by doing so. Um, you know, Luther essentially democratized the Bible where everybody could read it and have a say as long as they could read. Um, but that became the norm, which, you know, the Bible being translated into whatever the common language is of the time, you know, moving forward in time from Luther, um, which obviously had its own consequences. You, you know, even though the Bible became democratized, now you have disagreements over texts. Where before, you know, the people in authority, the priests, uh, could tra- could you know discuss those issues with themselves, come to an agreement, and explain that to the people. Well, now you have the people themselves having agreements with no, you know, overriding authority describing well what's the right way to think about it. So now you have the rise of all these different churches, all these different denominations, um, you know, who basically all think that they have individually the you know absolute you know word of God. And so going, you know, moving into, you know, the next few centuries after the Reformation, you see just how many, you know, hundreds and hundreds of denominations rise up and are all disagreeing, which which plays into the dynamic, you know, that, that we're talking about as far as, you know, the 19th century is concerned. Right. And so the last thing we should mention is the is setting the stage is <clears throat> the Civil War. In the U.S., so the Civil War over the four years that it was fought was a um, almost a literally earth-shattering occurrence on many different fronts. One in particular is that people were uprooted for their communities. I mean, I've seen many documentaries where they talk about the um, the particular regiments. Most of the guys that came from a regiment, be it from Alabama or Maine or Texas or whatever it was prior to the Civil War, never ventured just a few miles outside of their own community where they were born. Mm. And yet they found themselves miles and miles away in, you could say, quite literally a foreign land. Because somebody from Maine who wound up in Virginia would consider it a foreign land. Even though today we we think that's kind of silly because most of us have traveled to different states over many hundreds of miles. But that wasn't so much the case in 1860. And so it uprooted those those people, and some families were destroyed because the men who went off to fight were killed, or some people starved with uh, sieges, blockades. And um, particularly in the South, a lots of communities, particularly farms, were destroyed, plantations. And so the, the, the people's livelihood that had existed prior to 1860-61 was now gone, and they were uprooted, and what were they going to do? You no, know, just completely destroyed. It was a it was a catastro- it was a tectonic catastrophic event. So I mean, I I think any civil war anywhere would have a similar effect, but the residual effects of this of the American Civil War seems I don't know if it's unique or if that's just from my American centric perspective, 
Um, but what what do you think? First of all, do you think that that's even a valid thing to say that the American Civil War was unique uh, in the way that it affected the culture for years after, or do you think that that's not right? No, I think it was unique um, because sure there was an English Civil War that was a little more limited and it was a, a smaller area, um, but. <clears throat> In particular, what happened with the English Civil War is that you had a monarch before, then you had the Civil War, then you had what was called the Interregnum with Oliver Cromwell, where there was no monarch. And then when Karamo was deposed, there was the Restoration. So the monarchy, there was a new monarch restored. Was it? I forget who it was. But that was just the Interregnum is called, is the term is between the two, the two monarchs. So just this period that existed. But in the Civil War, this this completely reshuffled the deck. So if the North was industrialized and the South was more agricultural, that changed in the decades afterwards, where maybe the South was becoming a little bit more industrialized with what had happened, not necessarily from the Civil War, but just um, capitalism and industrialization itself. And then in particular, what had happened with the black slaves in the South, you know. With the Emancipation Proclamation, they were officially freed, but they <clears throat> they ran into many more decades of hardship afterwards under Reconstruction, and then with Jim Crow, and then afterwards even going on to this day. So that's a lasting impact of what had happened with the Civil War. Hmm. That's where I consider it unique. Yeah, and, and that's what you always read about, like or what I read about reading about the Civil War and reading about the cultural impact that it had is that – uh, in a lot of ways, we still haven't, you know, 150 or however many years after the fact, like we still haven't healed from it. We still haven't, um, you know, dealt in many ways with the issues that were at hand. Right. So to sum up all the things that have happened up until now, again, setting the stage is that with the rise of modernism, you had the, the rise of man as the measure of all things, the rise of modern science. Uh, particularly in philosophy, you saw the emergence of mind as a separate category, particularly with Descartes. You had radical doubt, skepticism with Hume. With Kant, you had what can I know? What plausibly can I know? And um, a priority of the mind, but also with categories of how one structures and orders the world. Is is the Does the world have an inherent structure or is some of that structure imposed upon the world by the human mind? Mm. Things like that. Um, the, ride, the, the decline of the nation as in an ethnic nation and the rise of a nation state. The, the seeds of industrialization versus um, making things by hand, artisanal type work. Uh, rise of larger cities with the nation state also a bureaucratic system. There was progress, which we forgot to mention. So man is progressing, improving mm -hmm. all the time. There is the Newtonian worldview, the mechanistic worldview, where God might play a part, but it is no longer a primary part that he once occupied. So with Charles Darwin, you had the, the downfall of religious certainty because man might not have been created. He might have evolved from a lower form. And evolution may or may not have some kind of rational um, operation, and maybe there is or is not a teleology associated with that. Archaeology supported that. There were older civilizations, other civilizations that were unique from Western Europe, 
or the Middle East, as people had taken for granted. Lots of doubt with the biblical criticism that the Bible, which had been taken as the infallible revealed word of God, now was shown to be the product of human hands, many of them, that uh, also showed incoherence and inconsistency. So what did, the, what did this all mean? With Luther, it was scripture then became primary versus the, um, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And then with the American Civil War is the breakdown of the cultural values and American identity and really tearing asunder a whole economy in the South and uh, the freeing of the slaves and what the ramifications of those were in decades afterwards. So, lots of lots of stuff going on in those past 300 years. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were reactions happening in response to this. So, one, for example, is when the Protestant Reformation was happening in Europe, there also was the Catholic um, Anti-Reformation as a response to that. I won't go into that, but this was one counter-movement to that. Now, as far as what was going on on a more general level, we had, with the rise of the nation-state, a patriotic jingoism. So, prior to that, again, let's look at Germany as an example. So, instead of somebody identifying as a Bavarian or somebody from Freiburg in the Black Forest or somebody in Berlin, you now had the rise of, we are a Prussian in the Prussian state, or we are Germans, Regardless of where we came from, we are all Germans. So then the nationalism was identified with whatever the, the, uh, the state was. Germany as the state. France as the state. England as the state. That was one reaction. Another one was evangelicalism in terms of religion, Christianity, but the Bible. Uh, fundamentalism arose. So in response to biblical criticism, it is no. We still go back to what we say before is that the Bible is the infallible word of God. It is revealed. And then you have evangelical movements such as um, you know, Pentecostals and things like that. In science, you had uh, positivism. So as science was progressing, before there might not have been too much of a conflict between the two because Isaac Newton himself was a uh, he was a believer, but then you had the rise of atheists. So science could, seems to prove inconclusively that there is no God, there is no otherworldly realm, and then positivism is taking it as well. Does the if you can't see it, if it's not scientifically proven, then it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and really putting a lot of your faith into the scientific method itself. And then with philosophy, you had uh, the common sense realists, particularly in the Scottish, and then you had absolute idealisms. So with absolute idealism, you had Hegel, Fichte, and so on, where the world itself is a totality. You know, we said before is that Kant described as a transcendental idealist, but that applied more to the individual human. Whereas with Hegel, it is the world itself is moving towards an absolute manifestation. Mm -hmm. And then with common sense, it is, well, okay, so what we can see is what we can touch, and so on is what's there. So we take a realistic approach. We don't get too bogged down into rationalist flights of fancy, and we lean a little bit more to empiricism, but we're not so radical in our doubts with empiricism. I mean, it's common sense, okay? So we just take it as face value. 
So those were responses to what was happening in the 300 years since about 1600 to going into the 19th century. Now, in the U.S. in particular, uh, for Boston, you had the rise of Unitarian and Transcendentalist Unitarians. Okay, So in particular, Unitarians refute the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Instead, there is just one God. There is not three manifestations, unlike there was with the Catholic Church and even to the Lutherans, those other Protestant dominations. Uh, the Transcendentalists were, these are the New Englanders, particularly in Boston. This is where you have people like Thoreau, Emerson, and so on. So they were more science-friendly, and this appealed to the, liberal, the liberal-minded middle classes in the Northeast so in their fight against the Transcendentalists, the Unitarians, they locked themselves into arguments which Darwin's theory was strongest against. And, but the Transcendentalists lost appeal to younger generations due to their dismissal of science. True. And Unitarians lost their appeal due to Darwin's better account of the science. So although people like Emerson were a popular lecturer, eventually they fell out because they were a little too, shall we say, fuzzy mm-hmm. when it comes to science. So science was still continuing apace, and people would look at Emerson and saying his talk of the oversold doesn't make a lot of sense because science, you know, where do you see it in the science? You don't. Yeah. So you're going to take science over that. The the transcendentalist, uh, like Emerson, he was all about uh, personal intuition, right? You know, the 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 rationality of a of a of an individual. He was all about the individual. And right. so, you know, he was he wasn't as much accountable to science or communities of people like, you know, scientific communities. He very much was all about, you know, the individual's ability to um to think and feel through problems and be original and he very much was a pull yourself by your bootstraps and think for yourself kind of guy. Right. And <clears throat> taking it further was uh, Thoreau with Walden going off by himself into the woods. Rugged individualism. Be self-reliant. Right, self-reliance. So that was unique to the Boston area, New England, Unitarian and the in the Transcendentalist Unitarians. So then moving right along, now we get to pragmatism itself, just briefly. So pragmatism, American pragmatism, you you find it in the in the Trinity. Peirce, James, and Dewey. Peirce and James were New Englanders. Peirce was born in, where was he born at? He was born in Cambridge because his father was associated with Harvard, as was James. Dewey was born not in Vermont, I think. Yeah, he was born in Vermont. So they were all New Englanders. And then pragmatism took up the mantle from the Unitarians. And then they set off to reconcile Darwin with a religious worldview, defending the existence of meaning after all metaphysical foundations had crumbled. So that's something we forgot to mention earlier, that with the rise of science— metaphysical certainty then started to take a hit. So what you could explain metaphysically didn't match up with the science. And then people began to doubt what the metaphysical explanation was. You know, another reason why the transcendentalist really didn't last very long after just a few decades is because of uh, the continual onslaught of science. So then the pragmatists, they linked Darwin to Kant, applying evolutionary thought to the realm of mind and the ideas of pure action. So theories, beliefs, and ideas were ways of responding to the environment and could change over time. And they were the first to discuss memes, 
And true ideas are the ones that completed well that survived in work. So it was a synthesis of Darwin and Kant. Uh,